All right, here we go. Exodus chapter 6, and we're going to jump right in. And I want to underscore for you as we reset the context just how undesirable uh, Moses' life situation is right now. Remember, God met him at the burning bush and said, hey, you're going to go proclaim my message of redemption. And Moses said, no, don't want to go. God said, you're going. And here's your brother, Aaron. He's going to help you. And so he finally goes and proclaims the message down to Pharaoh. Yahweh says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, eh, who's the Lord? Never heard of him. You guys are lazy. That's why you're dreaming this stuff up, that some God actually cares for you. Get back to work. By the way, no more straw. You got too much free time on your hands, and you got to give me the same number of bricks if you have time to dream about this God. And so just at the immediacy of Moses coming in to work this redemption, God's people, it's just getting worse and worse. Their slavery has gotten worse. The whips have gotten more frequent such that as they have opportunity to speak to Moses about it, they're not too excited. Remember this? This was the end of chapter 5, verse 21. The foremen who had been meeting with Pharaoh now come out and report the meeting to Moses. The Lord look on you, Moses, and judge, because you made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. So here he is. Moses has been on Redemption Trail 2.0. Remember, 1.0 failed horribly. He murdered the Egyptian and got chased out of Egypt for 40 years. Well, now he's back. Redemption Plan 2.0, and it also seems to be going horrible. Such that Moses turns to God, at least, in prayer and says this. This is verse 22 and 23, chapter 5. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you, God, have not delivered your people at all. So he says two things about God here. God, you're doing evil, you're doing them wrong, and two, you're a liar. You said you'd deliver them, and you haven't done it a bit. That's pretty serious. That's raw. That's real. I think we know that kind of real at times when we go through suffering. Why are you doing this, God? This isn't good, God. I'm looking at your promises. I'm looking at what's going on in my life. I don't see how this matches. How does this go together, God? What's going on here? Such that we might start to question, God, are you good? Because I don't see how this works. I can't make sense of this. You know, maybe this morning for you, it's physical challenges, ailments, breakdowns. You're realizing as you get a little bit older that you don't bounce back. You don't really bounce. <laughs> you just break. Or maybe it's the suffering of anguish and disappointment, unmet expectations and goals, life's passing you by, dreams you had are failing. Or on the very spiritual level, maybe it's the troubles, the pains, the guilts of battling against sin. You're just done with it. You're tired of failing in that. Such that you got, God, is this what you promised? You've wronged me, God. And that's where Moses is. It's very raw. He's hurt. And maybe you're there even this very morning. And if not, you've probably been there. If not, you will be. Either way, we're buttressing, we're strengthening our faith in this moment. And we take clues from how the Lord strengthens 
Moses. Because in this moment, and when you're suffering like that, and you don't know why this is for, what it's for or what it's about, this is where your faith starts to fracture. It starts feeling like it's crumbling. You're ready to just throw in the towel and walk away just to stop caring. Well, how does the Lord respond? How does the Lord come alongside Moses to encourage him? That is, despite how difficult things look in the short term, how hard things are in the moment, here's where he goes. God responds with resolve. Resolve. He doubles down. He's not moving from his promise. He's not moving from his plan. His plan still holds. He will fulfill all his words. See, with God, there is, he doesn't need to change his mind and, and figure out a new way. He doesn't have to come up with plan B. Plan A always works for him. Even when things in your life are not going so right. So with this, here's the word for us this morning. When things are not going right, you need to first, you need to remember who your God is. And we see that declaration throughout this text. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am God. He's the promise keeper. He's resolved to keep his word even though it hurts right now. And so as much as he's resolved to keep his good promises, let us too then be resolved, be encouraged, be strengthened in our faith to trust him in it and obey him nevertheless. And we'll find that with four guarantees that unfold from this text. And of course, this is given to Israel. It's given in what will be called the Old Covenant. But this is just a mirror and a picture foreshadowing of the great new covenant that comes for us in the church. And so we see these same guarantees for us, for the character of God has not changed. And the first is this, the first guarantee we see is God's reliability. He underscores His reliability that He Himself is the guarantee that all of His promises will come to pass. Because as it begins, again, Moses is terribly discouraged. He's accusing God, you're not fulfilling your promises. And so where does God go? He goes to his character and he goes back to his promises. He doubles down. Look at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. Don't forget that, Moses. I am the promise-keeping God. Now, let me clarify. He goes on to say, verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known. So he's saying, here's what we've heard through the patriarchs, but a change is coming. A change is happening. A change that's going to result in you're going to really know God. You're going to know His name, but not just the words. We talked about this when we were in Exodus 3. Israel knew God's name. They knew His name was Yahweh, indicated in your Bible by the all caps, the Lord. The patriarchs knew God's name. Just to give one example, right after God had called Abraham to the promised land, He said, leave your, leave your homeland, come to this place, and I will bless you, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's Genesis 12. Right after this, what do we find? Abraham wandering through the promised land. And as he goes, what does he do? He builds altars and worships Yahweh. Here's what Genesis 12 verse 8 says. 
So well before, of course, where we are with Moses. And there Abram built an altar to the Lord, that's Yahweh, and Abraham or Abram called upon the name of the Lord or Yahweh. He knew God's name. He knew to call him Yahweh. He knew God's personal name. In a sense, he knew him on a personal level. And yet, as we're back here in Exodus 6, a change is coming. You knew me as El Shaddai. You knew me as the God who makes big promises, the all-powerful God who makes great promises. Back to Exodus 6, look at verse 4. I also established my covenant with them, the patriarchs, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. So that's who El Shaddai was. He made a covenant, a promise, and he was going to give them the land. But now you're going to come to know me as Yahweh, as the Lord. Not the God who merely makes great promises, but the God who keeps them. I am faithful to my promises. I'm faithful to my word. And that explains because he is Yahweh, that they, yet they had not yet experienced that. But because that's who he is, the promise keeper, that's why he cares when it looks like his promises aren't coming to pass. That's why he cares when his people are suffering. Do you see that? Look at verse 5. He says, Moreover, I heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. I heard their groaning, and he cares, even though it's been 400 years in a way of groaning. He hadn't forgotten, even though it says here, and like we read in the end of Exodus chapter 2, God remembered his covenant. He remembered his promises. What does this communicate? Well, it's it's an analogy. It's trying to explain to us how to think about what God's doing now. Because God, He doesn't forget things. He's all-knowing. He never forgot His promises. That's not what even Moses means to say that God remembered His covenant. But what it means is it's this picture that God is bringing His promise to mind. He's ready to act and engage on it. This is where change is coming. He's going to come through on His promises. Because understand, God never forgets His Word, even when then it might feel like it. You might feel like He's forgotten you. You might feel like He's forgotten His Word. God, let me remind you that, uh, what's going on in my life. I don't read about in this book, do I? This doesn't look like love and blessing. But even in this suffering, understand, God has not forgotten. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten His Word. He can't forget His Word. He never suffers from, like, spiritual dementia. He never misplaces His promises like we do our car keys. Or maybe like we flippantly make promises to our kids, and then they come back and say, oh, but you promised, and you're like, oh, yeah, I did. I forgot. That's not how He works. He never forgets. He actually makes a promise, and then He's always driven to bring that plan to pass. But now He's saying, I'm bringing it to mind because I'm going to act on it. This is what's going to define him as the Lord. So as we consider this then, think about Israel. They've been waiting, in a sense, for a long time for these promises to pass. 400 years of slavery, 400 years of waiting. And yet God underscores here his resolve, that he is reliable. What does God do? 
How does he come to strengthen Moses and our reassurance this morning? He doubles down on his word. He doesn't renegotiate. It's not like a politician who has to recalculate how to frame it in the best way. No, he just says, I meant to do it this way. I have a plan, and it is good whether you can see it or not. Because realize then, even through the trial and the difficulty and the resistance, God has a plan for that to accomplish His good. And in the case for Israel, that means the whole plan of no straw and Pharaoh's hard heart, that was part of God's plan to accomplish some great good. So get that. Hold on to that for a moment. God even has a purpose in Pharaoh's cruel resistance. He even reveals it later on to Pharaoh. Look over at Exodus chapter 9. Look at Exodus chapter 9. Pharaoh gets something. We get something in this story. We don't always get in our personal lives. God actually makes clear about why he's doing what he's doing. And so he reveals this to Pharaoh. Exodus 9 verse 16. But for this purpose, God says, I have raised you up or caused you to stand, Pharaoh, to do what? Why? To show you, Pharaoh, my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Because understand, if Pharaoh from the very beginning had acquiesced to God's request, this whole story is quite different, right? You know, Moses goes in, God says, let his people go. Pharaoh's like, ooh, okay, have them. And then there's no movie, right? Charlton Heston doesn't get to do what he does. It's not too glamorous. Because understand, God set it up this way. Why? To create the opportunity to show how incredible his power is. It's like this. Let's say you, you saw somebody come into the gym. He looks a lot like me, like really ripped and buff, huge muscle man. <laughs> Why are we laughing? Anyway. <laughs> and you see him carrying 10-pound weights, maybe for his wife or something like that. But he's so jacked, you're like, that dude is strong. So you know it just by looking at him, but you haven't experienced it. And then you see him get on the bench, and he starts pressing 750 pounds. Then you're like, that dude's buff on a whole nother level than you can imagine. You know, it's like what Job says. He says, God, I had heard about you. And then God appears to him in a whirlwind, asks him a whole bunch of questions that Job has no idea what the answers are. And then what does Job say? Now my eye, that is my eye of faith sees you. He's experienced God. Well, that's what God's saying I'm doing here with Pharaoh. I'm setting you up, Pharaoh, so I can show to the world that I'm like no one else. There's no one like me. But even get this, the blood, the hail, the darkness, the pain, the death, even that is just the tiniest glimpse of his power. There is no one like him. And so back to this point in Exodus 6, he's reliable. He keeps his word. He's serious about keeping his word. Such that when even when there is trouble for Israel, maybe there's trouble and suffering right now. It's a wayward child. It's the strongest temptations. It's painful relationships. Why, God? How does this align with your promise? 
Does it align with your promise? If you are in Christ, know this, it must do so. He hasn't moved. He hasn't changed. He hasn't gone to plan B. He's still on plan A. He's resolved. He's reliable. Because get that, your present pain, struggle, difficulty says nothing, nothing about Him changing in His commitment to you in Christ. Because He hasn't in the least. Because He's fully reliable. He guarantees it. He also guarantees this, redemption. This is the next guarantee looking to verse 6. That He promises to redeem, to rescue His people. He promises them a rescue. Well, what then does it look like when God makes these promises? What does it look like when He's committed to somebody, when He's reliable, when He's going to be moved nothing from His Word? What does it look like? It looks like rescue or redemption. Look at verse 6 of Exodus 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel... I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So we see three actions about the way the Lord's going to rescue, about how He's going to save Israel. He says He's going to bring them out from Egypt's, the Egyptians' burdens. He's going to deliver them. And third, He's going to redeem them. But the first thing to see, before we start to unpack each one of those, the Lord is the one who does each one. I will bring you out. I will deliver. I will redeem. He is the rescuer. What a perfect reminder as we remember Reformation Day tomorrow. This was the truth that the Reformers rediscovered in the Bible. God is the Savior and no one else. We don't cooperate with God. We don't help God along. We were dead in our sins, and we were saved by Him. I will bring you out. I will deliver. I will redeem you. I will rescue you in every facet, in every way. And so let's explore each one of those just briefly. First, God declares that He's going to bring Israel out from Egypt, out from under their back-breaking, hope-crushing burdens. And it's this designation that God is the one who brings out. It is the designation that follows God really throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And just to give you one example, do you remember when God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel for the first time? You know, those ten laws that really summarize all of the law? It's in Exodus chapter 20. And do you recall how it begins? And God spoke all these words, saying, You shall have no other gods before me? Is that how it begins? It isn't. He says something before he ever gets to the commands of what they need to do. Do you know what he tells them? Here it is. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before he gets to any laws about what Israel's supposed to do as his people, he first tells them, I saved you and you're my people. 
I save you first, then you can get to how you're supposed to live for me. But I first redeemed you. And that's what this tag goes with God's name throughout the Old Testament. I am your Redeemer who saved you from trouble. Or back to Exodus 6. He doesn't only rescue them as in bring them out from under difficulty. He delivers them. He delivers them from slavery. And that term is so key because you remember Moses' accusation at the end of chapter 5? He goes to God and he says it in the strongest way in the Hebrew possible. You haven't delivered your people at all. And what's God say here? I'm going to deliver. I will absolutely deliver from slavery. The chains will be broken. The oppressive whip will be put away. They will be rescued, safe and secure. But then third, he says here, I am your redeemer. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And what's this idea of redemption? In the Old Testament, it carries two notions or ideas that come marvelously together. On the one hand, as a redeemer, you pursue and help a family member. You would redeem or rescue your next of kin, one you're committed to like family, your closest relation. Perhaps you remember when we studied the book of Ruth, that term kinsman redeemer. It appears repeatedly in the book of Ruth. Who was Ruth? She was that Moabite widow who was redeemed, rescued, married, and cared for by Boaz, her kinsman redeemer. And were it not for the actions of Boaz, what would happen to Ruth? She would have probably been homeless and destitute, fending for herself. But she had a kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who cared for her. Now, how does that relate back to Israel? How is the Lord a redeemer for Israel? Well, remember what he said about Israel in chapter 4. Right before this all begins, what does he tell Israel? You are my firstborn son. I'm after you because you're mine. I love you like my firstborn sons, so I'm going to pursue you and redeem. That's on the one hand. It expresses this committed familial love, this desire to rescue out of trouble as you would your own children. But more than that, and from this time forward throughout the Old Testament Bible, anytime the word redeem is used, it has this association of a price that gets paid. You pay a price, sometimes it's called a ransom, you pay a sacrifice, and by that price, that lets them go. It sets the one free. And so when you put those things together, familial commitment and a price being paid, you put those together and you get a beautiful picture of redemption. Put well here by Bible scholar Alec Machir. He says, The Lord knows and possesses His people and is ready to pay whatever price is needed in order to implement His next of kin right to redeem them, to take upon Himself all their needs as His own. And this is what God is doing for Israel. And he's going to do it for them no matter what it cost, no matter what the price was, no matter what it cost him. And from that commitment, we know salvation, this rescue is guaranteed because it's all his work. Now, the marvelous thing to realize is, is that these things are not only true about Israel, but this is true about all the people of God, the church that Christ has redeemed. Because you know this. The Apostle Paul, he can use all of these terms together to speak about how Christ has redeemed the church. Just one example. This is in Colossians chapter 1. 
And he speaks of our redemption, our spiritual redemption and salvation, all done by Christ. We read this. This is Colossians 1.13. This, this is in that prayer part of why we thank the Father. Why do we praise Him with joy? Because He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So by faith and trust in Christ, what God has done, He's taken you out of spiritual slavery, spiritual bondage, spiritual death, and He's moved you and transferred you into a kingdom where His love for the Son falls on you. You've been delivered, rescued, removed from that place, but you're not displaced, but you're placed in Christ. But then what do you get being tied to Christ? What gain do you find there? He says next in verse 14, what's so great about being in the Son's kingdom? In whom, in Christ, we have redemption. And what is that? The forgiveness of our sins. And so then we know. Like the Passover lamb, Christ paid the price of our sins on the cross to cover us. He paid His life for our deaths. We were guilty. He took the penalty. And so now we've been redeemed, free from guilt, free from penalty, free from sins and enslaving power, and freely forgiven. Made sons and daughters all by the payment of Christ. And so did He not pay for your life? Was His blood not enough? Then no, you don't have to add anything more. That's what faith is. I trust that Christ, you did enough. And He gloriously has. Now, it might not feel like that when we're walking through real trouble, right? And so then to take this back to our faith, when we're discouraged about where we're at, we're disheartened about what's maybe going on around us or in our life, think about this. What price did He pay for you? What did He pay to own you and redeem you? In case you don't remember, Romans 8.32 tells us, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? I mean, if He's willing to pay the price of His Son for you, what else wouldn't He give you? Can you not trust Him in that then? Can you not wait on Him to give you exactly what you need when you need it? If He's willing to give the price of His Son... Do you think you'd really hold back anything you really need right now? But I feel like I need it now. I don't know how I'll go on, Lord. Go back to the cross. He knows it's hard. He knows. But he's telling you, I'm your redeemer, and that hasn't changed. Trust me. I guarantee it. Third. The third guarantee is a relationship. It's related to all of this. That is, God does not merely, if we can even say it that way, He does not merely rescue us from harm and danger, ultimately hell, but He saves us for something. Namely, He saves us for Himself. This is astonishing. He saves us to delight in us and have a relationship with Him. This is the guarantee explored in verse 7. So we're back to Exodus 6, verse 7, and it reads like this. He says, God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, 
And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now just consider that language right there. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I will take you. What does that sound like? Don't those sound like wedding vows? But instead of that you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded husband, God's saying, I'm taking you to be my people. But then in response, and I am your God. You're my special people. I claim you as distinct from all others in the world. This is a special, exclusive relationship God has wrought. And we see him expand on that to Israel in particular in Exodus chapter 19. You can turn there or just listen. But in Exodus 19, this is the scene, the kind of where the marriage happens. So God has taken Israel out of bondage in Egypt, and he's brought them to Mount Sinai. Sort of they're at the foot of the mountain to meet God. And here's what God tells them. This is Exodus 19, verses 4 and 5. Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings to do what? And brought you to myself. He wants to bring you to know God, to meet him. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... So that's the call on Israel, their end of the bargain, so to speak. Keep that in mind. But he says, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. His point is, all the earth is mine. I made it. We saw it in Psalm 24. I have claimed everything because I created it, but I choose you. I committed to you. You are mine. Like a husband commits to his wife and his wife to her husband in exclusivity. I share life with you. I know you. And more than this, God says, I will be your God. I will be the one to rescue you. I will be the one to provide for you. I will be the one to accompany you. I will be the one to shepherd you. I will be the one to speak to you. I will be the one to care for you. I will be the one to come for you. I will be the one to live for you. I will be the one to die for you. I will be the one to rise for you because I am your God. And I will not be moved from my word. Of course, the only trick is we deal with Israel, right? They don't keep their end of the bargain. A lot like us, what do they do? They keep running from God. They keep disobeying His commands. They break the covenant. They don't keep their end of the bargain. But this is what's so astonishing about the Lord. Even as this people run from Him, that does not end His commitment to them. Such that what does He do? He says, you broke my covenant. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a new one. And we read about that in the glorious word of Jeremiah 31. This is the promise of the new covenant. What we celebrate because it came into being by Jesus' death. But that old covenant didn't work because you kept breaking it. So what does God say? I'm going to make a new one. And it begins by him putting his law right inside their hearts. He says this, this is Jeremiah 31, verse 33. God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hear that covenant commitment language again? I will be their God, and they shall be mine, such that everyone who's part of the covenant will actually know God. Listen to this, Jeremiah 31, verse 34. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. As in, know the Lord, know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me. See, that wasn't the case in Israel. The people of Israel, they were in the old covenant with God, but there was a lot of people, a part of the covenant, who didn't know God. Hence, they ran from him and they disobeyed him. But this new covenant, everybody who's in knows God. And there's a picture of that as his church now. We don't have to go into our fellow members of the church and say, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord. Because you can't even get into the assembly of God's people unless you know the Lord that is in membership. And he says here in the promise of Jeremiah 31, they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. It's not going to be the pastors or the priests. Everybody's going to know God. But still that runs into the question. But okay, it seemed a lot like the old covenant though. Like we knew you then, didn't we? What's going on? Aren't we going to mess this up? Won't sin get in the way again? Won't that put a barrier in our relationship? Well, not with this new covenant. Because what does God claim here? The end of verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. How will it be that everyone will know the Lord that's in this new covenant? For, he promises, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. How is it that the omniscient, all-knowing, eternal God forgets my sin? Well, the answer, of course, because Jesus Christ paid for everyone. Erased from his eternal memory. And we've alluded to it already. You understand then, this is not only or even merely for Israel. These promises of the new covenant. You don't get born into this by blood. That is, you are not born physically into this covenant or into this kingdom. Just like you're not born a Christian just because you're in a Christian nation. Nor are you born a Christian because you're born to Christian parents. You have to be reborn by His Spirit because of what the blood of Christ has done on behalf of the on behalf of you at the cross. And if that's true for you, if by faith you have seen what Christ has done for you, that He died for you, that He rose for you, then He becomes your treasure because you know Him. He's claimed you. He's made you His own. And you can do nothing in response but declare His excellencies. For you say with Peter, who's speaking to the church now, when he says, once you were not a people, you were not God's people, you ran from Him, but now, guess what? You are God's people in Christ. Once you had not received mercy, you ran from Him and rejected Him, but now in Christ, what's happened? You have received mercy. You are claimed and owned by Him, His chosen possession. Now understand, none of that changes even when you have to suffer. None of that changes in the least, even when things get difficult. Why? Because your Savior and His work on the cross is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If He has redeemed you and claimed you as His own, committed Himself to you as His bride, He will never leave you or forsake you, even if it feels really hard right now. And actually, it's through then you understand the difficulty where you really start to know Him and His love. You know, that's how it works in our marriages, isn't it? Isn't it through the difficulty you really get to know your spouse's love and commitment to you? I mean, think about it. When you're first married, you're madly in love for that like whole month, right? 
maybe a year or two. You know, it's like the extended honeymoon. And then suffering happens. Difficulty comes. Trials come. And that's where you have to figure out, are we really in this? Am I really committed? Am I committed really in sickness and in health, in good and bad, for richer, for poorer? And that's where your relationship gets tested. That's where it gets shown. And if you've stuck with your spouse and your spouse has stuck with you, that's where you really come to know one another. And that's what God has done with us as we walk through every trial. He hasn't moved. And in Christ, He won't let you move away in the end. He's actually using this to bring you home. Which takes us to that last guarantee, this guarantee of a future residence. Back to Exodus 6. Of course, for Israel, that future residence was this promised land of Canaan, a land that Abraham and the patriarchs, they only knew as temporary residence. They were on this extended camping trip all the time, sojourning and camping, camping all around the promised land, never at rest, never at home. To me, eternal camping trip sounds horrible. But God promised that one day they'd have a place to be. Verse 8, that they would actually get to live there and build roots. Exodus 6, 8, But I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. And then he concludes it with, I am the Lord. He's going to do it. He's doubling down on his promise. It's interesting, this expression in the Hebrew, I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I swore to give. It's this picture of with a raised right hand, he makes a promise. It's like God entered the courtroom. He raised his hand put his hand on his Bible that he wrote, and he says, I solemnly swear to give them the land. Now, why would God make a promise? God doesn't lie. He doesn't need to make promises. You know who lie? Kids lie. Adults lie too, but kids lie. They trick one another all the time. And so what do kids do to make sure their friends don't lie? They bring in the solemn pinky promise. Naked pinky promise, cross your heart and hope to die. And if you do that, then I'm sure you're not lying to me, little kid. Well, God cannot lie, so why would he take an oath? The author of Hebrews tells us. So when God desired, what did he, God want to do with this? To show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, what did he want to show them? The unchangeable character of his purpose. What did he do? He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which is it impossible for God to lie, that's the second one, then the oath is the other, that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, because we know He's going to follow through. And to encourage you that He's going to follow through, He's like, you can trust me because I never lie, but I'll swear anyway. He wants you to trust Him. He wants you to know His Word is not plan B. It's always plan A for those in Christ. And in particular, when it comes to you having a home with him. This is the great encouragement. Remember how Jesus came to encourage those discouraged and worried disciples? Remember, they were, they were anticipating their Savior is going to go die. Their king was going to go die. Their, their best friend was going to go die. And at this, they were worried. But then what did Jesus tell them in John 14? He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus says. 
Well, what am I to believe? Or what's the truth I'm supposed to believe, Jesus, that's going to give calm to my troubled heart right now? Because I don't want to lose you. Here's what he tells him. Well, know this. In my Father's house, there are many, many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to go prepare a place for you? I'm not a liar. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come, come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. That's his promise to us. That we get to be with him. Get to enjoy him. This Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. And so with that word, we have to say, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you troubled, fearful, doubting, or discouraged? The land of promise with Christ awaits you. Don't lose sight of it. Set your hope on it. And that means this place and, and, the, and the troubles here, they're real, yes. They are painful, but they are temporary. This place is like a dirty airport. You don't put up decorations in a dirty airport. And if you do, we got other issues. We're just passing through. We're, we're at the terminal. We're getting on board. We're already standing in line, getting ready to take our seats to go meet Jesus. And may that always carry us. For there is no greater hope than to see his face. And isn't that the great declaration of the new heavens and the new earth? That we will get to be with God. Where we will hear, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? Because those former things, they're all gone. Now, you would think at a word like that, Israel, when they hear it from Moses, they'd be excited. Well, let's look. Exodus 6, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They were suffering so greatly, they were so discouraged and weak of faith, they just couldn't even hear the good news. And maybe that's where you've been coming in this morning. Or maybe you know a brother and sister, and that's where they're there. They're so discouraged. But what are we supposed to do? Well, in a way, like Moses, we're supposed to keep giving them the truth. But we do so patiently. As Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5, we encourage the faint-hearted. We're patient with the doubting. End of the book of Jude. And that requires patience and consistency. But know this, we do it because His good word hasn't changed. And you know, the great encouragement that comes, even for you, if you're struggling with doubt this morning, again, in verse 9, what do we see? They doubt, they're struggling, they're so discouraged, they can't even hear His word. But does that change God's plan? Does that change His efforts to redeem them? Praise God it doesn't. Because He is fully faithful. Let's praise Him for this. Let's pray.